Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. And welcome back. George Norrie with you along with Howard Bloom, Howard's website, howardbloom.net, linked up at coasttocoastam.com. We're talking about his book, Einstein, Michael Jackson and me, and wait till we get into it in just a few minutes. So, Howard, let's finish up talking about Howard Bloom and who this guy is. Well, there are two stories you have to know. We left off with me uh, clinging to the doorframe of a blue Fraser while my parents tried to drag me up the street by my ankles. And I had just realized I was an atheist. So for me, there were no gods in the heavens, and there were no gods under the earth, and yet there were gods in this scene. They were in the passion that drove my parents to take their firstborn son and subject him to sacrifice on the sidewalks in order to get him to the synagogue. And I had a sudden realization um, that Galileo worked his magic by turning a lens up to the sky. And Anton von Leeuwenhoek, the inventor of the microscope, worked his magic by turning his lens downward at pond water. And I had to turn the lens inward because the gods were in my parents. They were in the absolute passion and conviction with which my parents were trying to haul me up to the synagogue. And if those gods were inside of them, then those gods were alive inside of me. And I needed, as one of my scientific quests, to find those gods, to experience them to the full, and to try to explain them. And there was one other circumstance that was remarkable. When I was 16 years old, I had been voted the head of the program committee in my high school two years in a row. I was wildly unpopular um, in that high school. They voted me the head of the program committee because nobody else wanted the task. We had school assemblies every morning before we went to class, and I programmed two of them, and I emceed all five of them per week. And one day the juniors came to me. And they said, we're holding a dance, could you advertise it for us? Now, George, remember, I was not popular in Buffalo, New York. So if there was a dance or party of any kind, I was cordially invited to park myself as far away from that party <laughs> or dance as possible. They didn't understand the irony. But nonetheless, I put a record on the turntable, and I went up on the stage to dance. Now, I cannot dance. My parents had sent me to dance class for a year in the hope of turning me normal, and it didn't work. By the way, were you bullied as a kid? Oh, absolutely. Oh, God. Sorry yeah, to hear that's that. how I spent my childhood. No child so, should have to go through that. No, no child should, but there's a certain advantage to being an outsider. So I went on this stage. I cannot do the foxtrot. I cannot do the box step. I cannot do the waltz, any of the things they tried to teach me. So when I danced, it looked like a looney tune. Was the twist going on at that time? Uh, the twist Ch- Chubby been, Checker's twist? No, the twist, I don't think, had went on until about 1961. So this is pre the twist. Okay. But I got up on stage and did something you have never seen before in your life. Um, and I looked like a Looney Tune drawn when Chuck Jones, the guy who drove Peppy Le Pew and Porky Pig and Daffy Duck and all of those characters from Looney Tunes, it looked as if he had drawn me after <laughs> taking LSD, which hadn't even been introduced yet. So it was the craziest thing you ever saw in your life, and I saw something really strange happen to the audience. Their pupils began to dilate. Their eyes began to open wide. Their faces began to melt. They came together with a collective energy like a giant amoeba of 350 individuals, and that amoeba reached a pseudopod out to me like a tunnel and sent its entire energy through me, and I had an out-of-body experience. I felt I was on the ceiling watching this whole thing take place, while that energy flowed through me, went to something approximately in the area of my head, was utterly transmogrified, and flowed back out to the audience where it opened their pupils even wider. You captured them. You captured them. Well, what happened after the thing was over, it was so remarkable. I mean, these are kids who hated me. 
that they did something they had never done before in my time at the school and they would never do again. They surged down to the foot of the stage, they picked me up on their shoulders, and they carried me out of the auditorium and on up the hill to the building where we had our classes. So that was my introduction to the gods inside of us, the gods I had seen when my parents were trying to drag me up to the synagogue. So one of my most important tasks in science became to somehow find a voyage of the Beagle, like Darwin's voyage of the Beagle, where he went around the coasts of South America on an explore, a ship of exploration for five years and eventually found the Galapagos Islands and had adventures. He participated in a revolution. He rode with the Caballeros, which are cowboys who had a reputation for being twice as good as the cowboys in North America. He did all kinds of things. So without those things, we would not have had the theory of evolution. My task became, became to find a path that would allow me the kind of wild, outside-the-box adventures that would take me to the lands of the gods, that would take me to the lands of these ecstasies and give me an opportunity to experience them and then to try to explain them scientifically. And I ended up in the ultimate land of the gods totally by accident because I grew up listening to Stravinsky and Bartok and Beethoven and Rachmaninoff, not rock and roll. I ended up in rock and roll, and it turned out to be precisely where the gods are. How old were you, Howard, when you became bedridden, and then all of a sudden the miracle occurred where you got out of bed? Well, I was 45 years old, and I was stuck in bed until I was 60. I was stuck in bed for 15 years. And for the first five years, I was too weak to talk and too weak to have another person in the room with me. George, we have done approximately 340 appearances together. Have you ever imagined me too weak to talk? Never. I, couldn't, I could not Never. utter a syllable. So, but that was transformative, too. I was forced to come alive in a whole new medium. The, the Internet was brand new. Most people hadn't heard of it. And I had gone on it in 1983 in the music industry. And since I lost everything that I thought of as my humanity, um, I lost every bit of future I had ever imagined for myself. I was left, it took me three years, to establish a new personality online. And so I became one of the pioneers of using cyberspace. And, and I, it, wrote, I founded two international scientific groups while I was in that bed, and I wrote three books while I was in that bed. And you were doing some of our coast-to-coast appearances in the bed, weren't you? I was spending you? five hours with Art Bell, which was one of the most exciting things that has ever happened to me in my life. That, that guy was electricity incarnate. He was. He was. Tragedy there, my friend. Tragedy there. So at what point did you get into public relations and music and things well, like that? That was a total accident. I was on my way to grad school. Um, remember the head of the graduate physics department who had said that I would get fellowships at any school I wanted That's in North right. America? Well, I got fellowships in four different schools in something that didn't have a name yet. Now we call it neuroscience. I was going to have to paste it together myself. And then I had a realization Grad school for me was going to be like Auschwitz for the mind. Here I was interested in the ecstatic experience, the gods inside, the source of soul within us. And how much soul would I find in giving 22 college students paper and pencil tests in exchange for a psychology credit? I would never get anywhere near the gods inside. So I jumped ship, and I went into something I knew nothing about, and it was called popular culture. And eventually, I ended up in 1957, 19, no, wait a minute, I've got to get my years straight, 1977, something like that, 1975, founding what became the biggest PR firm in the music industry, because even though I didn't know anything about rock and roll, that turned out to be a huge advantage because the people of rock and roll had certain 
standards, cookie-cutter ways that they went about doing things, ritualistic ways. And based out of New York? Yeah, and I didn't know those rituals. All I knew was science, so I looked at what worked and what didn't, and I was able to run rings around the people who had grown up as vinyl junkies and spent their entire lives in the music industry. And as you got into it, you worked with some incredible talent. I assume Michael Jackson, one of them. Yeah, Michael Jackson, Prince, Bob Marley, Bette Midler, ACDC, Aerosmith, Kiss Queen, Run DMC, Billy Joel, Billy Idol, Paul Simon, Peter Gabriel, David Byrne, uh, ZZ Top, Joan Jett, Chaka Khan. The list goes on and on and on. Oh, the ZZ Top boys are uh, dear friends of ours, Billy Gibbons and Dusty and Frank Beard, good people. And they, yeah, they're still Billy, going strong. Yes, they're still going strong, and there's a new movie about them. And every time I go walking through the park, which I do twice a day, um, People stop me and say, didn't I see you in the ZZ Top movie? Well, they sure did. <laughs> my job was to find the soul of these absolutely remarkable people, to find the soul of Michael Jackson, to find the soul of Prince, to find the soul of Bob Marley, to find the gods inside these people, and help them express those gods to their audience. Why did some of them go so early, the Michael Jacksons, the Princes? What, what, what was wrong? What compelled them to be so reckless? Um, It it wasn't so much recklessness. In Michael Jackson's case, Michael was on this planet for 50 years. He spent 25 of those years becoming Michael Jackson, and he spent 25 of those years dangling on the cross in pain. Um, And he was thrown into pain, not by any efforts of his own, but because he represented more power. He was bigger than Elvis Presley and the Beatles combined. He represented more power than anybody else in the entertainment industry and just about anybody else on the face of planet Earth. And people who love power, there was one person in the music industry in particular, a villain who you'll see in operation in this book, and that villain loved power. And he knew that if he could cause trouble with anybody, anywhere, he could find a way to insinuate himself into the situation and get some of that money and power. And he did. And the expense was Michael Jackson's life, because it set a negative cascade of press going for Michael that never stopped that kept going for the remaining 25 years of Michael's life. And that's why Michael ended up taking all kinds of drugs in order to put himself to sleep at night. First of all, he was the greatest entertainer I've ever seen in my life, and that's a difficult statement when you work with Prince and John Mellencamp and Joan Jett and Billy Idol, all of whom are amazing, astonishing entertainers. And Michael topped them all. And the excitement of getting on stage and doing a routine that he had worked out carefully, bit by bit by bit, got him too excited to sleep. But it was also the fact that he was being accused of all of these sexual things that drove him crazy. So he needed Propofil, and eventually his doctor gave him too much of it. Um, With Prince, um, Prince avoided drugs. He really avoided drugs, but he apparently, as he got older, developed back problems. Wasn't it fentanyl that got him? Yes, it certainly was, and you know how easy it is to overdose on that. Now, if every person who used fentanyl was also carrying naloxone, which blocks fentanyl, so that if they collapsed in an elevator the way the Prince did, they could immediately take the naloxone, Prince would be alive and with us today. What a talent he was. Oh, he was amazing, but Michael, there's nothing that compared with Michael. Again, Michael's ability to see the infinite and the tiniest of things was beyond that of any human being, not only that I ever met, but that I ever even imagined. He took wonder, awe, and surprise. To oh, level. he, he did. Now they have imagined. a hologram concert with Michael Jackson as the hologram. That's amazing. Well, um, I hope it does him justice, but I wish he were still alive. 
because I felt that he could, if people only understood what Michael contributed, the degree of awe, wonder, and surprise that Michael felt, I feel it would expand the perceptual envelope of humanity. It would expand the envelope of possibility for all of us. And I try to get that across in this book, and maybe it's getting across because Michael Jackson fans, I've been on the MJ podcast, I was on the MJ book club, MJ is Michael Jackson, and the fans love this book because they feel it's the first book that really explains who Michael Jackson was and why he was so important. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.